The following podcast is an Impact Media LLC production. Welcome to Simple Everyday Things, a podcast exploring issues of happiness, social justice, wealth building, respect for dignity, all through the lens of everyday things. Things that might seem straightforward, but instead become exhausting. Simple? (laughs) Not quite. The American Dream. When you hear that, what comes to your mind? For me, I grew up listening to Motown love songs back when I was a teenager, and I call the American dream the lover's dream. To fall in love, get married, have kids, buy a house, build a home, see your children have a better future, a better life than your own. That's what all the old folks were talking about when I was growing up. This is what I call the dreams of lovers. But what if the path to your dreams has roadblocks that are almost insurmountable? Institutional, systemic roadblocks, cultural roadblocks, social obstacles of nearly every type you could imagine, all there preventing you from achieving your dreams. These are the types of barriers or roadblocks every African American faces in our American system of institutional racism. In his poem, Harlem, renowned poet and author Langston Hughes wrote, What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? In the case of a group of African-American families in South Bend, Indiana, the dream coalesced into a plan of action supported by great minds and even greater hearts to fight for justice and the realization of these lovers' dreams. In her book, Better Homes of South Bend, an American Story of Courage, the author Gabrielle Robinson recounts the story. After much thought and prayer, they finally got the courage to translate their dreams into action. They prepared themselves carefully and consulted widely. They also sought the advice of their ministers since they were all devout churchgoers belonging to South Bend's many African-American churches. This lengthy process allowed everyone's opinion to be heard and all fears to be aired. Only then were they ready to make their move in secret. At first, I um, thought of this book mainly as a historical document, which it is, you know, to tell us something more about our own history here in South Bend. That's Gabrielle Robinson, a retired English professor and author of the book Better Homes of South Bend, an American Story of Courage. But as I was writing it, and especially by the time I had come to the end, I saw that it has significance way beyond just a historical document. It has really important lessons for us today. How very hard it is to bring about even a small bit of social change. Um, What an enormous effort it takes. What a huge courage. I mean, these folks really stepped out of their comfort zone. I was in college when Keith Bingham, the son of one of the founding members of the Better Homes of South Bend co-op, enrolled to complete his master's degree at Indiana University. I hadn't seen him for years, and we were just hanging out on a Saturday night listening to some jazz, reminiscing about growing up. 
He made what was almost an offhanded comment about Elmer Street. He said, I I hope the story of what our parents went through gets told. He said, think about it. How did these 20 black families fight the system and build homes in that white neighborhood? That was the first time I can recall wondering what was the origin of the community we called Elmer Street. Back then, we were just kids. We were just having a good time being kids, playing, passing time. As we got older, we'd have house parties, first kisses, innocent stuff, so many memories. Whenever I would speak with one of the kids, it was just like the conversation I was having with Keith, almost like being catapulted back in time. All of the, do you remember when this happened or remember when that happened? But nothing about Elmer Street was just in the past. You kept in touch went to family reunions, funerals, shared a laugh when you saw each other at the store. To this day, the impact pulls at your heart like an old photograph. Kids take for granted the world they find themselves in unless you know the story. And if you don't know history, the hard work of your parents to build a life for you is lost to time. But history was for grown-ups, right? That's until you're curious. What was the story? Gabrielle Robinson recounts how her book was written in large part due to the persistence of Leroy Cobb. Mr. Cobb, at the founding of the co-op, was its youngest member. He was only 20 years old when he and his wife, Margaret, joined the co-op. Ms. Robinson relates the many times he urged her to write the story, recalling he was polite but insistent, emphasizing the historical importance of the story. He was a representative for the families of the co-op to future generations. Lyra Cobbs' family was a part of the first wave of the Great Migration, referring to the millions of African Americans who moved from the South to the North. The first wave came when the United States began preparing for World War I, the second wave as we prepare for World War II. The majority of the Better Homes group were a part of this migration. While South Bend was not as desirable a location as Chicago, South Bend did have a large number of industrial jobs. This included Studebaker, where a number of the co-op men worked. Finding work was one problem. Where to live was another. That problem, where to live, was largely out of the control of most African Americans. Leroy Cobbs' story was not unique. He attended Linden Elementary School, which had opened in 1890 to serve the children of Polish and Hungarian immigrants. Mr. Cobb often talked about how he felt his family and neighbors shared a bond, all of them feeling as if they were newcomers. The African Americans knew to the North, the Polish and Hungarians knew to America. Mr. Cobb remembers there were only a couple of black families in his neighborhood. Everyone was poor, European immigrants, and African Americans. Population trends naturally shifted, and Linden Elementary became entirely African-American by the end of the 1950s. Years later, Linden would be ground zero in the effort to racially integrate schools in South Bend. 
Mr. and Mrs. Cobbs, they were dear friends of my own parents, Albert and Sue Smith. My parents were also a part of the Great Migration. Ironically, he and his wife, Margaret, moved into their new home November 1st, 1953, just a month after I was born. Our dad grew up in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. He always told the story that when he was 22 or 23, a friend's family was moving to South Bend and asked if he wanted to come along to help with the drive. At the time, the job prospects were not bright in Pine Bluff, and like so many others looking for a better future, our dad agreed to come along. He always laughed telling the story of asking if there were any jobs in South Bend and his friend telling him, don't worry, there are plenty of jobs. So they hit the road, arriving shortly after World War II. Our dad told us he stayed in South Bend six months, unable to find steady employment, and eventually returned to Pine Bluff. He decided to give it another try the following year. Our mother was from a small town called Bells, Tennessee, about an hour east of Jackson. Her mother, our grandmother, died from tuberculosis when our mother was two. Her death certificate calls it consumption. Her father, our grandfather, moved to South Bend in the late 1930s, and our mother stayed behind raised by our great-grandparents until she was a teen. She later joined her dad in South Bend attending Central High School. As fate would have it, both our mom and dad began working at Zyker's Cleaners on the same day. They would eventually fall in love, get married, and carve out a future. Later, our father went to work at Studebaker, and our parents also owned a small store near the factory. Coincidentally, my dad was laid off from Studebaker the day I was born. I always tried to imagine what he was thinking that day, losing a job and having a newborn. But together, they made it work. It's the familiar story of love, hope, and dreams. This is true for so many families and was manifestly true for the families who would become a part of the Better Homes of South Bend Co-op. Their hopes of building a brighter future included owning their own homes. In order to do this, they would have to break the walls of systemic racism and discrimination which prevented so many African American families from owning homes in South Bend. Well, I mean, again, I think, first of all, we have to look at the history. That's really important. That's Judith Fox, a clinical professor of law at the University of Notre Dame, where she leads Notre Dame's Economic Justice Clinic. So, I mean, I, I just I checked the numbers just yesterday because um, I knew I was going to be talking to you. And I was curious to see where we were. And the, the, the most recent statistics, about 67 percent of all Americans are homeowners. But if you break that down further. 75% of white families are homeowners and only 46% of African-American families. So you can see the huge divide there, right? Fewer than half of African-American families are able to own their own home. And I think, I go back to it, you have to understand the history, right? So owning a home was really not a norm in America until after the depression. Um, you know, so very few people own their homes. Uh, the way mortgages were structured, it was very hard to own your home. And after the Great Depression, because there were so many home left homeless by the Great Depression, the federal government decided to step in and try to help people own their homes. And that's when they created the Home Owners Loan Corporation, which is a way to lend money to people. But the problem with that was the home 
owner loans corporation created the maps that we now call redlining, right? They created maps where they drew literally red lines around certain neighborhoods and said, you can't lend in these neighborhoods because there are blacks there. And it was that explicit. If there are, if, and if there were a few minorities, it was like a, a yellow zone, you know, caution zone, but if there was a, a high minority, and the idea was we aren't going to guarantee any loans to African-Americans because those are dangerous loans. So that kept out African-Americans really up until the civil rights acts of the sixties, right? Mm -hmm. so, so you've got that period of time when many people, you know, after World War One, at World War II, many vets came back, were able to buy homes. That's really what spurred sort of the growth of the middle class. But African-American vets who came back didn't have that same experience. Um, there were some hearings held in South Bend in the sixties, which I think are really um, telling. And, and one of the stories that, you know, sticks in my mind was of Dr. Shambly, who was at Normandy, you know, fought for the country, came back, but was unable to buy a home in South Bend because he was African-American. He had to actually have a white friend buy the home and switch it over to him. But more telling to me of that experience is I did a presentation on some of these stories that happened here in South Bend several years ago. And I just so happened to have Dr. Shambly's grandson in my class. I didn't know that. And he was asking me why I had a picture of his grandfather for this presentation. Here, just one generation removed, he didn't know the story. He didn't know what his grandfather had gone through. And when I was telling these stories, I realized that so many of our young people don't know their own history and don't know the history of this discrimination. That's Judith Fox. She is a national expert on foreclosure, predatory lending, and fair housing. If you want to build a better future, you need economic opportunities, goes without saying. While South Bend had factories like Oliver Manufacturing Company, Bendix, Singer, Sewing, most employed few, if any, African Americans. Studebaker was by far the employer with the largest number of African Americans, employing over 700 during the 1950s. For members of the Better Homes of South Bend Co-op, home ownership was more than a vague concept. It was and is a part of the basic pillar upon which to build the future. It solves not only the obvious need for shelter, a place to live, but home ownership has and continues to be a principal element of wealth building, a significant source of household wealth. It is foundational. The growing number of workers created a demand for housing made even more critical given the limited inventory of available housing. If we look at the map right now and look at the 17 and 1800 blocks of North Elmer Street, you would consider that to be on the west side of South Bend. When I grew up, we always referred to it as the north side growing up in the 1200 block of North Olive. Not many associated African-American home ownership with the North Side. Growing up, almost all of our neighbors were white, and I had no clue that the reason for this was that Lincoln Way West was the unofficial North-South boundary. There were not to be any homes north of Lincoln Way sold to blacks. This was the backdrop for the meeting that took place on a Sunday afternoon in May 1950. It was the alignment of dreams. 
dreams of a brighter future for themselves and their children. For these families, it would be a fight against the systems of injustice that held so many back. And this dream would not be denied. From the minutes of the first meeting, quote, a nonprofit organization was formed and given the name Better Homes of South Bend, Inc., close quote. Author Gabrielle Robinson notes that it was the first African-American building cooperative in South Bend trying to, quote, break through the wall of discrimination that relegated them to the poorest, most dilapidated parts of the city, close quote. These families took a step that was bold and inspirational. For me, personally knowing these men and women, the parents of my friends, fills me with a sense of pride that is deep and profound. These were the families of Elmer Street. During their first meeting, the group elected a slate of officers. Loretta Allen became the president, Earl Thompson vice president, the secretary was Louise Taylor and Ruby Page as assistant secretary. The treasurer was Bland Jackson. All men worked at the Studebaker factory and four out of the five officers were next door neighbors on Prairie Avenue. The group's attorney, Chester Allen. He was one of the major actors in this endeavor. He told members of the group that he already had a location for building the homes in mind, though nothing specific was said. The overtones of the meeting were not unlike the gatherings in the South where strategies were formulated to combat racism. Gatherings held at the risk of bodily harm. The air of secrecy hung thick over each meeting. Attorney Allen did not have to spell out the reason for the secrecy. Everyone in the room was all too aware of the precariousness of the situation. Those present had plenty experience with discrimination in all aspects of their lives at work, in housing, in their leisure activities. While discrimination in the North was not legalized as in the South, it was still publicly sanctioned and ubiquitous. Attorney Allen wanted them to move quickly and secure the site before anyone was alerted to African Americans moving into a white neighborhood. He stressed the importance of acting as a corporation, receiving its corporate charter, and the need to keep good records. Once the charter was received, the lots could be purchased and the loan secured. Only after all that was settled would the individual homeowners pursue their own mortgages. Secrecy. Again and again throughout the first meeting and emphasized at subsequent meetings, the need for all their discussions and negotiations to be kept secret. Attorney Allen insisted repeatedly no information should be given out. The North was to be a field of dreams. However, discrimination was alive and well. One quote from the book stands out. Hardy Blake a Studebaker worker from Mississippi stated, quote, I left the South to get away from Jim Crow, and then I met Jim Crow in the North, close quote. Reverend Buford Gordon was the first minister for a chapel that was to become a part of Olivet AME Church. His book, The Negro in South Bend, A Social Study, examined the living conditions of African Americans in the city. In it was a passage, quote, 
there are people who think that the Negro is in the same environment that the white man is since we live in the same city side by side. This was not the case, close quote. Reverend Gordon had been born in Pulaski, Tennessee, the birthplace of the Ku Klux Klan. He had been trained both in ministry, in psychology, and sociology. He moved to South Bend in the 1920s and often used his book to sound a strong warning against the growing racism he observed in whites. He said, quote, Public sentiment has been built up against Negroes coming into certain localities, close quote. He had the view that while legislation against discrimination was important and critical, legislation alone was ineffective in combating racism. A change must take place in public sentiment, a change within the hearts of people. He experienced this himself firsthand. Olivet AME Church had just become an independent church, the first African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. It was located at 801 North Eddy Street in a white neighborhood. During the time the church was under construction, the Ku Klux Klan showed up late one night and damaged the building. After that incident, the church members kept all-night vigils in order to prevent further damage. There was resistance in the form of the KKK. There was also resistance in the form of public sentiment fiercely opposed to African Americans owning homes in certain parts of the city. One of the chief weapons in the battle to keep neighborhoods white was the racially restrictive covenants. So on top of the redlining, we also had racial covenants, right? So these were things written into deeds saying that you could not sell your house to African-Americans. That's Judith Fox. She is a national expert on foreclosure, predatory lending, and fair housing. And we still have those in our community. They're not enforceable, but first of all, they were enforceable years ago. They haven't been enforceable, you know, for, for you know, more than 50 years, but people don't know that they're not enforceable sometimes. And certain neighbors, like I know, for instance, the Sunnymead neighborhood have restrictions uh, that you can't have an African, you can't sell to an African-American, an African-American can't live in a house unless they're a servant, right? Now, again, it's no longer enforceable, but for many years they were, right? So you have this entire community that was prevented from really accessing the markets to buy their homes until well into the 60s and 70s and even beyond. I mean, I have spoken to folks in South Bend who tried to get home loans you know, into the 70s and couldn't. And there's a marvelous uh, project in Minneapolis called Mapping Discrimination. And they've been able to document that racial covenants were being put into deeds long after they were illegal or unenforceable. They're not technically illegal, it's just you can't enforce them. So I think you have to look at the generational uh, problem of people being unable to access those markets. Even the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, participated in this discrimination. Its official manual declared, if the neighborhood is to remain stable, it is necessary that property shall continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. In the view of realtors, Banks, the FHA, and the public at large, Harmonious Neighborhoods was another name for racially and economically segregated neighborhoods. 
the families of the Better Homes Co-op wanted to find homes away from the factories and slums that surrounded them. They wanted to give their children a better start in life than they had. This was the reason their families had moved to the north in the first place. I'm the youngest of five kids. I have two brothers, two sisters. A part of the curse of being the youngest is that so many things happened before I was born. In that way, I was perpetually clueless. I grew up in the 1200 block of North Olive Street in South Bend as the youngest. We moved from a house on Sample Street into a home owned by attorney Charles Wills when I was about two years old. The story I was always told was that he had sold his home to my parents in anticipation of relocating for a new job. I recall my parents saying that he had been offered a job overseas, which required a physical exam. During the exam, he found out he had a heart condition and that prevented him from being able to handle the demands of the new position. By this time, our parents had given up their home on Sample and Olive Street was the only option. We lived with Attorney Wills and his wife for about six months until he was able to find a new home. I grew up hearing stories about how he and his wife spoiled me. Being a toddler, they doted on me and were constant figures in my life even after their move. Similar to Attorney Allen, Attorney Wills had a great civil rights record challenging racial discrimination and injustice. He would go on to be lead attorney in the effort to desegregate South Bend schools. I went to elementary school at Cayley. Most of my friends from the neighborhood either went to Cayley or Marquette. Most of my white friends in the neighborhood who were Catholic went to Holy Cross located across from Measle Grove Park. I remember one day when I was five or six years old, I was tagging along with my brother Daniel. He was the best. He owned the big brother thing. My oldest brother, Donald, did not have that level of patience with me, and that was totally understandable. I was the geek younger brother who read encyclopedias. Daniel was on his way to visit some of his friends. Along the way, I asked more than once where we were going. It was the first time I can recall hearing Elmer Street as a destination. It was the two blocks of homes owned by the families of Better Homes of South Bend. My memories are distinct. Elmer Street had manicured lawns. Everywhere you turned, there were kids playing together. Almost all my brother's friends had little brothers or sisters. And being the youngest, I would sometimes tag along with my sisters, my oldest sister, Sue Catherine, and my other sister, Rita. Their friends also had younger brothers and sisters, and we all came to know each other. Their parents knew our parents. Our parents knew all of their kids. This was different from the mostly white neighborhood we lived in. Everyone was black. The kicker is that at the time, we knew this was special, like an oasis. This was Elmer Street. When I was about nine years old, I would go door to door selling magazines. It was a rite of passage of sorts. It's what my older brothers had done, my time now. First it was grit, then it was boy's life, but I kind of hit the jackpot when I started selling Jet Magazine. Jet was a black magazine, a smaller weekly version of the monthly magazine Ebony. Jet costs 
20 cents, I could keep a nickel for every one I sold and send the rest back to the company. My dad and brothers helped me with the process of buying a money order, mailing it back. For me, Elmer Street was my marketplace for a black magazine, and I pretty much made my living on Elmer Street. All of the families were willing to help an aspiring entrepreneur. They were all in the same neighborhood. That was pretty nice. I was making a couple of bucks a week, which was pretty good back in fourth grade. This allowed me to indulge my superhero crush, and Marvel and DC Comics made a chunk of change off of me. That was business. But as you can imagine for us kids, Elmer Street was mostly about fun. Hanging out with your friends, playing football, basketball, exploring the Kirk Concrete quarries a few blocks away, all about fun. As we became teenagers, we had house parties with the girls, all under the watchful eye of parents upstairs. The parties would end early enough for us to get home by 10.30 or 11, and there was never any worry, and we knew that any word of trouble had a way of getting back to our parents faster than the internet. Not to mention that all the adults were like our own parents and checked you if you got out of line. This was Elmer Street. But what was the story? How did Elmer Street happen? The co-op Better Homes of South Bend, Inc. began Sunday afternoon, May 21st, 1950. The paid members of the co-op, Bosey and Lila Williams, Clint and Cleo Taylor, Marcus and Lalar Cecil, Arnold and Loretta Allen, Robert and Louise Taylor, Gus and Josie Watkins, Wade and Butha Fuller, Earl and Vero Thompson, Bland and Rosa Jackson, John and Millie Fleming, Sherman and Ruby Page, William and Catherine Bingham. When they elected officers, Loretta Allen seemed a natural choice for president. She was a born leader, well-spoken, and she commanded authority. She also knew how to make the right connections with people who could help them, such as their attorney, Chester Allen. She grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, born in Oklahoma, but her family had moved north. She was married to Arnold Allen, who was born near Memphis, Tennessee. His family had moved to Detroit when he was two years old. He was a musician who had his own band up until World War II. Vice President Earl Thompson lived in a defense home at 1339 Prairie Avenue. He was born in Newton, Alabama. His family moved to South Bend when Earl was five, joining relatives already here. He worked in the machine shop at Studebaker's and was active in his church at St. John's Missionary Baptist Church. He was a deacon serving on the deacon board, a senior director of the choir, and part-time church custodian. Secretary Louise Taylor and her husband Robert both lived on Prairie Avenue. They both arrived in South Bend in the early 40s. Robert had a job as a laborer at Studebaker's. The couple had no children. Assistant Secretary Ruby Page was wife of Sherman Page. They lived at 1517 South Catalpa, just east of Prairie Avenue. In 1950, Ruby worked as an aide in St. Joseph Hospital. She later worked for the Urban League and at Reese's Furniture Store. 
Her husband, Sherman, had been born in Indianola, Mississippi, moved to South Bend in 1922 with his family. He joined the armed forces in 1943, married Ruby the same year. He was an assembler at Studebaker. The treasurer was Bland Jackson, born in September 1919 in Sunflower, Mississippi, just a few miles north of Sherman Page's hometown, Indianola. He served as a sergeant during World War II and after the war joined his wife in South Bend, where she had moved to be with relatives in his absence. Like Earl Thompson, he worked in the machine shop at Studebaker. Willie Gillespie was from Memphis, leaving the South in 1948. Melody Fleming was from Elkton, Tennessee. John Fleming came from Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Rosie and Albert Warfield were from Arkansas. William Bingham and his wife Catherine were both from Jackson, Tennessee. My name is uh, Francis Keith Bingham. Uh, I was born in uh, Jackson, Tennessee in 1948. And in that same year, my parents moved to, my father graduated from uh, college uh, on the GI Bill and moved uh, to South Bend where he had an aunt who helped him to get a job at Studebaker's. And that's how my family ended up in South Bend. Um, I was about nine months old when I came to South Bend, so it's the only home I've ever known. Yeah, my dad uh, came from a very poor family uh, in a little a small town in western Tennessee called Jackson, Tennessee. It's in Madison County, Tennessee. And um, he was the oldest in his family. And uh, when World War II broke out, he uh, anticipated getting drafted, so he just decided to enlist, and he enlisted in the Navy, um, spent uh, four years in the Navy, and when he was uh, discharged, he used the GI Bill to go to Lane College, a small uh, um, uh, historically black uh, college in Jackson, Tennessee, graduated with a degree, and um, married my mother and my mom, Cap, and moved to South Bend together. Clint Taylor was from Baton Rouge and Robert Allen from New Orleans. Bozy Williams came to South Bend from Marjorie, Arkansas, his wife, Lila, from North Carolina. Louis Stafford was from West Virginia, Walter Hubbard from Mississippi, and Aubrey Chambers from Illinois. Wade Fuller was also from Indianola and his wife, Butha, from Union Springs, Alabama. Only James Adams was unaccounted for, but Leroy Cobb was certain that he, too, originally was from the South. Only Ed Coker, Obie Chambers, Louis Stafford did not work at Studebaker. The group became close-knit, ranging in age from 70 to the youngest, Leroy Cobb, being just 20 years old. It's important to note the roles played by women of better homes. In her book, Collective Courage, which deals with the history of African-American cooperatives, Jessica Gordon Nimhart stated that African-American women played significant roles, held leadership positions across almost every kind of organization. The women of better homes, whether they were officers or members, bore this out. They were active in many of the educational and civic organizations, characteristic of the times from the Urban League to the NAACP. Better Homes attorney Jay Chester Allen was a man with a long list of firsts. 
He was the first black man on the South Bend City Council as well as on the school board. First black president of St. Joseph County Bar Association, the first African-American state senator from South Bend elected in 1938. He had attended Brown University. From there, he went on to Boston University School of Law. He started his practice in South Bend immediately after arriving. He used any means he could in his struggle for racial justice. He worked through the Urban League, the local chapter of the NAACP, and also aligned himself with progressive whites. He wrote letters and publicized the wrongs he saw, and despite a number of setbacks, he never gave up. One of his first actions in South Bend, fresh out of law school, was to file a complaint against the exclusion of African Americans at the Ingman Public Natatorium. This effort took 19 years but was ultimately successful. Attorney Allen, he had met his wife Elizabeth at law school. Both of her parents were college graduates and she attended Talladega. At law school, she lost a couple of years because of tuberculosis, graduating six years after her husband. She did join him in South Bend and was one of the first female African-American lawyers in Indiana. Together, they formed the law firm Allen & Allen in 1939. This served as the core of the Better Homes Group. They were united in their mission to break out of the segregated confines where they were forced to live, all wanting to find homes away from the factories and slums that surrounded them and give their children a better start in life, a better start than they themselves had. The dreams of lovers was alive. Up until that time, Lincoln Way West was an unofficial racial boundary. Only two black families lived north of it. Dentist Guy P. Curtis and his wife Josephine, and attorney Charles Wills and his wife. If Better Homes succeeded on North Elmer Street, its members would be the first African Americans in that middle and working class neighborhood. As I mentioned earlier, ironically, the home that attorney Charles Wills owned would become our childhood home when our parents purchased it from him in 1955. The story always told to me was that he had sold my parents the house in lieu of a job he ultimately decided not to take. The obvious dilemma, he had sold the house to my parents. The solution was typically African-American and rooted in Southern culture. Both our families would live under the same roof until the Willses purchased the new home. The quarters were tight, as I was told, tight but manageable. Being a toddler, attorney Wills and his wife spoiled me for the next six months. He and his wife remained powerful influences in my life, and I have never forgotten the smell of the cherry tobacco he used to smoke in his pipe. During the more than three years it took for the group to pursue its dreams, they demonstrated patience, perseverance, and ingenuity. They challenged the local power structure and its pervasive racism again and again. Throughout that time, its members were able to gather in democratic and cooperative manner, carving out a path to secure their American dream. In those three years, surveyors, contractors, lending institutions in the city all seemed to impose conditions that were difficult for better homes to meet. Not many details were recorded in the minutes, perhaps because of the group's continued focus on secrecy. 
Another possible reason for the silence was not to frustrate members even more by the delays. The pervasive urgency to get things settled was at the heart of keeping the group unified. The lots were located in the 17 and 1800 blocks of North Elmer Street in the Marquette Heights edition, five blocks from Marquette Elementary School in a white neighborhood. The actual location of the site was not mentioned in the minutes. What had been noted and was noted that just a year prior across the border between Indiana and Michigan in St. Joseph County, Michigan, African Americans had succeeded in buying land to build homes only to be faced with a newly created zoning ordinance. It stipulated that no one could build on parcels fewer than 20 acres. This created a racial barrier thinly disguised as a capital constraint. The group was meticulous in their planning and execution, and the board continued to meet during the summer of 1950 on into the fall. After a grueling day's work at the factory, it must have taken all of their strength to concentrate on the complicated financial issues, negotiations with banks and contractors from the city, and the drawn-out process of getting improvements from the city. The success of buying the lots was overshadowed by resistance from a number of directions. As one might have expected in the climate of the times, white residents of the North Elmer Street area did not like the prospect of a group of African Americans moving into their neighborhood. The only outright mention of a problem occurred on January 5, 1952. A financial institution had not only turned down better homes for a loan, but had also made them wait a considerable amount of time for an answer. During this time, D. Hart Hubbard from the Cleveland office of the FHA visited the group explaining FDIC insurance regulations. He told the group that since the government was ready to insure 90% of their loans, that as long as everyone's credit was good, the banks should extend mortgages. He became a constant source of support for the group. Even after purchasing the lots, the city continued to erect roadblocks, responding slowly as in providing the infrastructure improvements such as sewage and water. Both were necessary to start building. Mr. Cobb remembers the co-op needing to petition the city for everything. Another problem, securing a contractor. Max Meyer of Oak Street in Niles, Michigan, a few miles north of South Bend, had been singled out as a promising contractor. However, he frequently revised his prices, leading to an air of mistrust. The co-op demanded fair and honest standards. Contractors historically used a different set of standards building for African Americans. Ultimately, Meyer would not abide by those requirements from the FHA, and Hubert Woodcock of South Bend and John Skiles of Plymouth built all of the Better Homes houses. September 10, 1953, the South Bend Tribune reported the tearing down of the defense homes which housed so many African Americans. They reported, quote, 650 families who were occupying four World War II emergency housing projects faced the prospect of ceasing to be tenants of the federal government, close quote. Despite the need for housing, Better Homes was unsuccessful in attracting new members. 
In her book, Miss Robinson recounts, the reason may have been financial or perhaps people who witnessed the long struggle of better homes were afraid of the drawn out process and of relocating to an area that had not been open to African-Americans. What is it that you hope for in life? Take a moment and ask yourself that question. Then ask yourself, is it too much? Is it too much to hope for? Is there a chance or is it like the list, poor children write Santa hoping but not believing? Learning to believe and to hope and to act on those hopes are part of the great lessons of life. November 1st, 1953, exactly one month after I was born, Leroy and Margaret Cobb moved into their new home on Elmer Street. It was a Saturday. This is over three years after the first secret meeting of Better Homes. The Cobbses now had a clear space for their growing family. Their third child was to be born in a couple of months, and here they were. Leroy Cobb, only 23 years old, he and his wife owned their brand new home in a nice neighborhood. He said he often thought of others in the group who, although much older, had never owned a home, and he and his wife were aware how fortunate they were, always feeling grateful. So much of the telling of the story of the Better Homes Co-op is due to Leroy Cobbs' insistence on its historical relevance. He wanted to honor those involved and in doing so became a voice to future generations. Although by far the youngest member, he played an active role in the organization. During this time, he worked multiple jobs, as did many of the men. He was also a dedicated photographer known for capturing special moments. He spoke of how he never lost faith in their goal or faith in the leaders. Over the many years of struggle, he also picked up every bit of wisdom he could garner. He learned about business, financing, and banking. He went on to invest in real estate at one point, owning eight homes, paying cash for all of them. He never took out another loan. In Gabrielle Robinson's book, Better Homes of South Bend, an American Story of Courage, there is a photo, a picture of the picnic the families had celebrating their victory. Every family contributed to the event. Mothers made cakes and pies, while most of the men cooked barbecue chicken and ribs on the grill. J. Chester Allen was present as well as his wife, Elizabeth. The photograph. Families posing for the camera. The joy and pride of having waged a victorious struggle was evident in their faces. The now 22 families that settled into their new homes that made a long, long journey from the South in large part to rescue their families from Jim Crow. Once in South Bend, they did all they could to find a safe place for their families to grow. Looking back, few could have foreseen the impact of what they accomplished. Brenda Wright, daughter of Bozy and Lila Williams, summed it up when she said, we should be forever in their debt, in debt to our parents that they made this move. It made a difference in all of our futures. The children of better homes, many of them retired by now, feel the same way about their parents. My name is Mike Jackson. Our homes were great. 
I remember waking up on Saturday mornings and lawnmowers were cutting the grass and all the yards were looking good. We had a lot of pride in our well-maintained homes. We were in and out of each other's homes all the time. We couldn't get away with anything. With all our parents watching, we had, like I said before, many moms and dads. There was a loving and caring atmosphere everywhere. For many, Elmer Street, as it became known, was more than a physically attractive place. It was an oasis. Playing baseball and football in the middle of Elmer Street <laughs> before, they even, before they even paved the street. We uh, played on dirt road. That's Leroy Cobb Jr., Mr. Cobb's son. That was fun. That was big time fun. And we, we never, we played baseball. I'm talking about hard baseball in the middle of the street. Never broke a window. <laughs> and we played football. Yeah, so that was fun. The best memory of growing up on Elmer Street was, um, you know, every summer we had a parade. That's Leroy's sister, Vicky. A street parade. <clears throat> I blocked off the street. And uh, we had a king and queen also at our parades. We would, uh, you know, like a lot of us would, uh, the girls would have uh, batons and we would twirl batons. And then our fathers, uh, they made wagons so the small children could ride in the wagon. So we would just parade up and down the street, <laughs> you know, and then we would have a little picnic afterward. We also had a, a club. I forget the name of it, but uh, we would meet like once a week, like on the weekend, you know, at each other's home, and, you know, and we'd pay our little dues and stuff. So we had we had a bunch of fun with these kids over there. Growing up, the kids attended Marquette Elementary School. A number of the boys were star athletes in school. They had many white friends, and the same was true of many of the young girls. Uh, the good times was... Uh, Every spring they had a, like a little uh, fair at the school <clears throat> and we, we'd go there and play games. You know, you could win prizes and they had a cake walk, you know, <clears throat> people's parents would bake cakes and cupcakes and stuff and then they would sell them. And so that was fun. Um, I didn't have any problems with any of my teachers when I went to Marquette. Didn't even realize anything about racism at that time because we got along with our schoolmates. You know, we, <clears throat> as a matter of fact, I, <clears throat> Uh, some of us were even, they had this group called the Bluebirds. So we would always meet at somebody's house for our Bluebird meeting. But the only thing about it, they never came to our houses. It was always at a white person's house. At Marquette, I didn't have a whole lot of good experience. It was, I guess, what I want to say, it was like the end of segregation, actually, on the north side. At, at that time, I didn't recognize it. Until I got a little older, but it would just, um, we felt really, I felt really isolated in that school, uh, being the only black person in my class until I got into the sixth grade, although I'd see other black kids in the hallway. And I remember asking my mother, why is it I wasn't in a classroom with other black kids? And she tried to explain it to me as easy as she could, but uh, it just, it, it, it was just racism, you know, it was uh, still segregation, um, 
it it, it was a it was a terrible feeling for me for being at Marquette for six years. Terrible, I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah, me and Leroy Thompson, detectives came to Marquette. We were both patrol boys, and uh, yeah, I was happy to have that little, you know, watching the uh, kid, uh, kids go across the street and all that, but it didn't last long because detectives came to the school and they had me and Leroy Thompson in separate rooms uh, saying that uh, two fair-skinned black guys robbed the paper boy. <laughs> so <laughs> my mother and Mrs. Carter came down to the school one. They, they were smoking, I'm telling you, <laughs> you know. And nothing ever came of it. You know, we they, they said, okay. They, I mean, they never apologized. They... And it, it was embarrassing, actually. It was after I thought about it over the years, you know, it was like, this ain't really happening, but it did. So I um, think I was in the sixth grade, Leroy was in the fifth. As you listen to Leroy Cobb Jr. speak about his experience at Marquette, you can't help but be struck as to how it still weighs on his heart even to this day. No one is shielded from racism because of your age. Finding the right words often doesn't find expression until you're older, but listening to the voices of adults talk about their youth should be enough to cause you to want to build a more just world. One where the content of your heart is enough, when the end of the rainbow isn't. For most of the boys playing baseball and basketball often kept them occupied late into the evening. Playing sports, however, was another place racism often bubbled to the surface. One experience in particular still weighs heavy in the way Langston Hughes describes in his poem, Harlem. This is Michael Jackson. The park was a, also a great uh, place for us to play baseball at Marquette School. So many black baseball players were heroes to the young boys of Elmer Street. Jackie Robinson had only recently broken the color barrier and some of their own fathers and uncles had played in the Negro Leagues. It was not surprising that the boys were eager to play Little League Baseball. It was organized. There was a small stadium, a Little League stadium, in walking distance from their homes. The leaders of the Little League organization, however, changed the boundaries and borders so that a Little League district would stop just two blocks from Elmer Street. They were ineligible to participate. But one big disappointment was when discrimination reared its ugly head and we were cut out of the new Little League boundaries. This was a heartless decision from the league's organizers demonstrating how sports erects the same barriers of systemic racism even for kids. Jackie Robinson's success had yet to reach South Bend's north side. Elmer Street was a beginning. It was certainly not the end of their struggles, absolutely not the end of their battles against racism and discrimination. The group challenged the local power structure, its pervasive racism with determination, 
underscoring why author Gabrielle Robinson calls this a story of American courage, a story of husbands and wives, a group of lovers, allies who believed in them, fighting to make the dreams of these lovers come true. Elmer Street, the North Side, is a co-production of Impact Media LLC and 88.1 WBPE Radio. Based on the book, Better Homes of South Bend, an American story of courage with contributions from Gabrielle Robinson, biographer, historian, academic, and author of Better Homes of South Bend, an American story of courage, Judith Fox, clinical professor of law at the University of Notre Dame Law School, a national expert on housing discrimination and predatory lending, Vicki Cobb, Leroy Cobb Jr., Michael Jackson, Keith Bingham also contributed to the story. And special thanks to the late Leroy and Margaret Cobb for being the voice to future generations. For a link to the book, Better Homes of South Bend, An American Story of Courage, and to listen to the podcast, visit WVPE.org, search Elmer Street. In order to help others find us, please leave us a review. Stay on the lookout for more simple everyday things. I'm Carl Smith.